Welcome to Full Potential, Thriving with Neurodiversities. I'm your host, Sarah Intonato. This podcast teaches parents of children with neurodiversities, such as autism, ADHD, learning disabilities, and beyond, to support their kids in reaching their full potential so that they can thrive instead of letting stereotypes define them. My mission is to end suffering amongst these parents by giving them the tools to heal themselves, which in turn empowers them to be bold, confident advocates for their children. By addressing a variety of topics, such as well-being, advocacy, and spirituality, these parents stop being the victims of a broken system and instead succeed in providing their unique children with exactly what they need to thrive and share their gifts with the world. One by one, these families now change the world through their uniqueness instead of being victimized by it. Are you ready? Let's get started. All right, everybody, welcome. I'm so, so thankful to have a wonderful guest with me today. Her name is Soma Mukopadier, and she is the creator and innovator of Rapid Prompt Method. She's also a parent to someone on the spectrum. So she relates to all of our listeners, both as a professional and as a parent, which I think is so very important for everyone listening. And I know that many people like myself have had the experience of, you know, someone talking to you as a professional, but they don't understand what you experience as a parent. So I'm really excited to have a beautiful conversation with her and hear more about her story today. So Soma, thank you for joining us. And please tell me anything that I left out in your introduction, if there's anything you'd like to share. No, everything is fine. Like, you know, it's, uh, and how RPM started and uh, how it is evolving is sort of, it's not a linear process. It's sort of many things combined together. You suddenly discover this in one person, then you discover, wow, there I I did not use this for this person. And so you have to all add a, add it up together and present it as a kind of a process. So it's it's still evolving. I'm still learning. I'm, I think I'll always learn even till my last working day, I'll continue to learn. So it, it's exci- it has been exciting because as I began to work with my son, because there was no other option, when you are a parent, and there's nothing that is working out there. You just have to roll up your sleeve and just work. And yeah. so you, so first you work with your instincts and see what is working because you know that every day uh, my child is growing up and you don't want that day to be wasted. So what I don't like is the waste of human mind because mind is a very terrible thing to waste. And so you start growing the mind through teaching, teaching concepts. And then you start while you're working with the mind, teaching concepts, evolving it into a kind of a process where the student is also learning the motor skills to uh, navigate the letterboard or handwrite, depending upon where the student is and what the choice, uh, the more a choice of the student to uh, express his. Uh, his answers uh, or response is you then you realize that you know 
I have to add on to this as a kind of a sensory process also because sensory learning is also a big learning. See, we have we have information learning, then we have the sensory learning. And so we have to assemble everything to, together. Just cognitive learning is not enough. And then you have to create a sensory curriculum also. And based on that, you see that you add all these things and the motor response and the motor progress of the student is a an output of information plus senses. So you do this, you do this, you practice this, and then you see that different students are so different and each of them have their own individual sensory and you can say uh, that informational needs. Yeah. And then you adapt your the process to that particular student and uh, you presented. That's why RPM is more about practice. See, you have a theory. I grew a theory. Okay. But then it's a kind of a generalized theory. But the adaptations, that is the most, that is the key thing which the teachers have to practice and which I got good with through practicing. I love hearing that. And I loved when I first learned about rapid prompt a few years ago, the definition of it really spoke to me because and I'll read it to you now, it is a method to empower the learner with the best possible means to empower, to express thoughts, understanding, reasoning, and learning. Here's my favorite part, at that instant of learning, because individuals are constantly changing. And I've seen as a parent to a child with autism, so often people with good intentions, even teachers, for example, kind of get stuck in a rut of always doing the same thing or learning in the same way or trying to teach a student in the same way that they taught two years ago. And yet brains are constantly changing. The way of thinking is constantly changing. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how you see this change in someone who's practicing and practicing like you've said. Yeah, see, so this this is where I'm looking at it. I'm looking at the sensory landscape. What is changing? Okay, open learning channels. So I'm talking about the sensory landscape. So here, sensory landscape is the visual landscape, which is an important learning channel, auditory landscape, which is an important learning channel because these are the primary learning channels. And then you have the secondary learning channel as tactile and kinesthetic. Now, kinesthetic is actually uh, not a sensory channel, but it is the output of all these uh, the ingredients that are happening. Now, visual, so a student is uh, spelling on the letterboard, and then suddenly the visual vision got changed into looking in another direction towards a kind of a, a different visual target. And so the student is not looking over there. So the, so the visual landscape changed suddenly. Okay, then, and it can be impulse related, it can be sensory selection related, it can be anything related. Then auditory, so the student is spelling so suddenly the, the topic became a kind of an auditory fatigue and the student's internal thoughts talked to the student. And when the student's internal thought, oh, I need to grab that pencil. So an internal thought, which was an auditory intervention with a language and the student began to follow the kinesthetic activity followed that direction and the student paused the spelling and gravitated towards that kind of a kinesthetic activity. 
Now, tactile. So tactile is also a large part. So there can be a tactile discomfort. So if a student, it is because uh, our skin is the largest sensory organ. If the skin is sort of not feeling good, then the student is going to uh, sort of reject the other processes. Like when we are in pain, then someone says, look at this beautiful picture, we can't enjoy that picture. Or the teacher can teach and the skin is not feeling right. Maybe it the skin is feeling too hot or too cold. And then the student is going to respond to that kind of a thing. And the kinesthetic activity would be a kind of an escape mechanism or a kind of a fight or flight mechanism that happens. See, so that is where you see the sensory landscape changes. And based on that, a teacher has to understand that part. And if the teacher is not understanding and continuing to teach, despite the student's like uh, you can say uh, uh, these uh, 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 what's that called a sensory landscape at that instant then the teacher may not be able to teach properly or the student may not be able to respond properly yeah this is what I want people to really understand I think if you just see a picture of someone doing rapid prompt lessons it looks like the student is just spelling but in reality everything you just said the teacher really has to be almost a detective around what's going on with this individual person's sensory needs with the internal landscape that they're feeling. So it's really not just, okay, here's the alphabet, spell this word. It's more about how can we create the environment that allows someone's sensory needs to feel fulfilled enough that they can then focus to spell the word. Is that an accurate statement? Yes, 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 yes. Because see, here, the, the, that is why the efficiency and practice of the teacher is necessary. Because through practice, the teacher gets better and better. And of course, the better limit is not there. You just keep go, go, getting better. And the student also keeps getting better because we don't have any kind of a, a bettering limit. Right. It reminds me a lot of my daily yoga practice. I've had the pleasure and the immense honor of studying yoga in India for the last almost 20 years with a guru. And you don't go there to do a teacher training. You don't go there to get lots of certificates. You go there to be a student and to keep learning. And when you said you'll keep learning for the rest of your days on this planet, that really resonated with me because every day when I'm on my yoga mat is different from the previous days. I'm learning something new. It's changing how I operate. And I think of this method is being very much like that. It's a constant evolution of both the teacher and the student together. Yes, it's, it's just a kind of a building process. It's a very fluid kind of a, a way. And so the lesson becomes a part of the learning. And at the same time, the student also learns other sensory uh, tolerances because uh, you have to tolerate in order to adapt to the situation because this is not a very sensory friendly world. So you can't live in a bubble. So the world is going to talk. The world is going to, uh, uh, there would be, it is a noisy world. There would be visual uh, stimulations all over. You just can't live in a bubble. And so just like information is necessary for us to cogitate all the uh, uh, important things that we need to know around us, we also need to know, we also need to adapt our senses. Our senses also have to learn. Yeah. I was wondering if you could tell us more about 
your journey as a parent. I know your son is an adult now yes. and he has published books. Yes. He has gone to university. I believe he's graduated. I think he's of that age where he's graduated. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. He, he, he attended college, but that, that is not my main goal or his no. main goal. See, right. learning is a lifelong process. A, right. a, a, the a college is not just a kind of a cognitive ceiling over there. You go to college, whether you go to college or you don't go to college, you can keep learning. And today there are so many tools. So you like you can do you. There are books over here. You have Google search. Everything is right over there. And so you pursue your own intellectual needs or whatever your interests are. You keep doing it. So it is college, according to uh, for us, was just a kind of a landscape, which uh, I'm glad that he got chance to yeah. attend some classes. But that was not just the goal. He keeps learning. I keep learning. Right. I'm so There's glad no that you said that. Because I think many parents get caught in the mindset of comparing their child to the typical child's journey or what they think is, I'll use air quotes, the right thing to do, at least in America, when you have a child, they go to school, then they go to college, then they get a job. And yet I did all those things. And I feel like some of the best learning I've done in my life so far, and I'm going to keep learning, was not in the college setting. And I, and I really want parents to absorb this because I think they get sometimes those milestones get stuck in their head almost as if I achieve that I'm good enough or if I don't achieve that maybe I wasn't a good enough parent or I didn't help my child enough and and I love what you're saying the learning is about what is the student interested in what is going to help him or her to keep learning it's not about do they get a degree or not yeah see like uh, because see degree is something like okay information okay I learned this information and this ba basket of information I have learned, I have uh, given my tests and I have achieved. But then there's so many information over there. But so you, you just keep adding over there. Even, even when you hear a news about a new place, you would want to explore that new place. You would want to know about it. That is another information. So it's, it, it's like uh, you can say college is a landscape. And then you evolve out of college and you pursue your own thing. Yeah. Yeah. And when you have a student who say has a strong interest in something like history, for example, I know my son's really interested in the ocean and loves learning about anything related to the ocean. Do you tend to do the lessons according to the student's interest or do you tend to try and vary the lessons with different things so that they can get exposed to different things because i know many families on the spectrum come to me saying things like their child gets into a pattern where they only want to watch certain types of tv shows or they only want to read certain types of books do you like to vary things on purpose so that they get used to different things or do you think it's good to take their interest and nurture it yeah See, there, there can be both ways. So what I would do is if, uh, if someone likes ocean, then I would uh, include a poem like An Ancient Marina by Coleridge, okay, which is based on a story based on ocean. Then I could, so I, I would start creating an interest around the 
uh, so Treasure Island, where you have Long John Silver and all these different characters are, are, are there and create interest. So, uh, poetry written by Ocean, like Robert Frost, Shattered Waters Made a Misty Tint. So that is another. So how many ways you can see the ocean, ocean life, and then hook it with the uh, other things like poetry and other, you can anchor it anywhere. You can take yeah. the whole ship through the ocean and anchor it with the, uh, you can say, uh, all, all the uh, important uh, explorers of the world. The, uh, uh, like explore, exploring to Antarctica, how Antarctica was discovered by chance. See, so you can, you can, it's still ocean, but then there are all the different landscapes and other things to uh, uh, navigate uh, over there as information around oceans. Yeah. And when you have a parent who maybe doesn't feel confident in doing things like that, and what I mean is that sometimes they'll try to change the patterns or change the routines of their child, and the child will get upset because he or she is used to having the same books, having the same TV shows, for example. How do you encourage parents to keep going or to be confident in continuing to try when maybe the first time it doesn't go so easily? You know, I'm not a great person to do motivational talk because, see, for me, I can demonstrate in my uh, lesson doing yeah. that, but you should do that <laughs> because everyone is trying their best. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I don't want to actually interfere between the parent and the child and the parents. Okay. Yes, if a parent asked, then I would suggest that growing the, uh, you can say, uh, from uh, the, the radius of ocean to other things around the ocean and continue growing the radius. I would ask if anyone asked me. Yeah, I know. I think parents want to know because I think what I've seen with the parents who listen to my podcast, for example, or reach out to me is that they want to feel more confident. And they are really great at consuming the information, learning new things, reading the books for themselves. And then they understand the information themselves as parents. And then when they try to implement the information and it doesn't go perfectly, and you know, things don't go perfectly for me on the first try either, they feel a little bit discouraged. And I think what I've seen as a parent is just keep going, keep trying. I can't tell you how many times I, Try and it didn't go well, and I just kept going. Yeah. yeah, it's like an art class. First, you go, you are learning how to hold the brush. Then, after that, you learn the use of other brushes, what thickness the brush should be, and doing different kinds of things. It's just like an art class. You take this teaching also as a kind of an art class project. Yeah. That's beautiful. I love that. And I think also, like you said, there's learning that continues for a lifetime. So it's, it's not about getting it perfect today. And I think maybe this is an American mentality too, is that people often feel like they get tied up in the outcome. Oh, today was a good day. Today was a bad day. And really today was today. There's learning in today. Yeah, when we segment it up, you just see it's not all good. It's not all bad. So there are shades of gray. So there will be, but then you'll, you'll make, they'll make less mistakes if they want to pursue this. But now if they do it once and they don't do it anymore, then 
they won't achieve anything. Right. So the goal will be there. So they are not creating a roadmap. See, in, in order to construct a road, we have to do many things. We have to uh, we, we have to bulldoze the unnecessary, irrelevant things over there, sculpt out the passage, map it, and then the road gets constructed. So there is a lot of work going on. So this is more about yeah. the creating a roadmap. Otherwise, the goal would be there and without a road, it won't work. That's right. That's right. And building the road can take time. Yeah. Yeah, it all depends it. upon it all depends upon uh, the uh, structure of the landscape yeah yeah i love that metaphor because, yeah because the landscape is also going to give a lot of resistance if you are building a road through the mountain you have to work a little harder if you are building a road on a plain flat surface it's a different thing yeah beautiful that's really so profound in so many ways. And I think it can be applied to so many parts of life. Yes, to rapid prompt, of course, but so many parts of life and parenting and learning. Oh, yes. See, so so I, I work with one student who is sensorily, whose sensory landscape is more like a flat surface, like a plane. So he doesn't have so many sensory challenges. And so I'll introduce the letter board a little earlier. But then there would be some students who would uh, have more rocky edges over there where I have to smoothen those rocky edges. So there I may not be able to introduce the letter board right away. So there I have to go with choices and uh, like uh, making it visually easy so that he can perform better. And on that note, when someone has a young child who they want to start learning rapid prompt, they might think, oh, my child doesn't know the alphabet yet. They can't do it. How could they start to introduce things in a simple way for a child that maybe is, say, three years old? So you can start introducing by uh, creating uh, uh, like words around the students that three-year-old's uh, immediate interest. You are eating. This is letter E. E begins eating. So just like a three-year-old, you have to become a three-year-old, think like a three-year-old, and then imagine how a three-year-old thinks, because you are not going to talk about nutrition and, and, and vitamins and proteins for a two or three-year-old. You're going to right. talk about eating and actions. So a three-year-old would be more based on verbs more based on what the, so you are holding. So all these different things because a three-year-old is going to be very active. And on the contrary, if you have an older student who let's say is a teenager and who he, he or she hasn't been nurtured in spelling or writing or reading in school and the teachers for whatever reasons haven't nurtured that process, how do you recommend they start in the same way, the very beginning, because I think some parents worry that it might be too late. No, it won't be too late. Again, I would start creating uh, from the uh, immediate interest of the student. So that student has never done RPM, but he's interested in maybe staring at his fingers if he's in a group home or looking at a device. It de depends upon what the student is doing. So based on that, I would start. So if he's looking at the fingers, I would, I would start from there. See, these fingers, these are, 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 are like they have these different marks and these marks are very important because this shows how different we are. So the difference, so from there, 
I would talk about differences in pe people that they say we are all same, but we are not all same because the fingerprints say that we are same. And so, so thinking about that, I'm going to create a kind of a wisdom for him. With that, so growing a kind of a, uh, so uh, different people in the world. So we all look different. No one has the same kind of face. We think different. So, so, and I'll create a lesson around that. Now, if at all he is interested in, uh, uh, interested in watching his cartoons and he has never done, then I would start over there, like animation. So, importance of animation, then maybe the uh, story of Disney and how it helps. So, those kinds of things. I love this so much because you're allowing someone to start, but in an age appropriate way. I think I've spoken with many behavioral therapists who work in group homes who say one of their challenges is that they see people being treated younger than they are. And they don't feel that that's an accurate assumption to make about, yes. about body. Yeah, see, emotional emotional learning is also an important thing, like where to be. If people uh, spoke to me like I was five years old, then what would happen is I would create a kind of an em emotional chaos within me. Should I be five-year-old or should I be uh, 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 something else based on? So here you are, although you may be catching up with uh, the information that the student did not uh, learn at that time by creating little uh, like little lessons, but you talk to that person age appropriately so that they emotionally also the student expects that this is how people will talk to me from now on. When I was in the very beginning stage of learning about rapid prompt, that was something that really I thought was one of my favorite things about it was the principle that you always speak to the student in a conversational, conversational, respectful, and age-appropriate manner because I've seen people do that to my own child. He's 12. And I've seen people talk to him like he's three. And as a parent, I know he doesn't have the emotional capacity of a three-year-old, but I've always wondered how to explain to others politely, you know, hey, you don't have to talk to him like that. Let, he really is interested in this or talk about this and just try to redirect their energy without criticizing them. But I think for me, that's what I thought was so special about rapid prompt is that you can start a student at the beginning, no matter how old they are, and teach them the information in a respectful, age-appropriate way. Yes, yes. Talking uh, and then telling the students, see, you did not learn this addition or subtraction, what we'll do is we'll do a cross a crash course and we'll see why we have to learn. Suppose you have to do a deal with, do a business and you need to know your profit and loss. So I'll tell the student why he needs to learn the concept of addition and subtraction without making him feel bad that I did not learn what two plus two. So for a, for a three-year-old or for a five-year-old, I can say, see, two, we are going to count forward. But for an older person, I would give more the concept of addition and subtraction and why we need it. I love that because we want to inspire the student and that's going to happen differently depending on their yes. age and how they're operating in the world. It's not the same for everyone just because someone's verbal ability 
might be the same as someone younger than them. Yes, for yes. Example. I think it's a really key difference. Yes. So powerful. So powerful. When you see students who are excited to do more typing because maybe they can text or they want to with, you know, that's a very age appropriate way for teenagers to communicate, for example. I know I have some wonderful friends whose children also practice rapid prompt who are encouraging them to type more on their AAC devices or on their iPads or things like that. Do you find that that's an easy or difficult transition to make for most people or is it really vary per person? It also, depends. it also depends. So suppose someone uh, is uh, has the urge to type, but then is typing any random thing. <laughs> then that random thing is going to come in the way of purposeful spelling. So I would first see the content of what the student is typing. If the student is typing a whole list of things to do and then is going nowhere, then I would pause over there and try to create a little hub of discussion around the list of things to do. So he says, I'll go to McDonald's. Then I would talk about fast food and how the fast food industry has contributed to American America. Then now it all depends upon how much the student will allow me to, uh, because some student may stress out because I, I'm doing so. I may just do one or two sentences the student is going to allow me. Then the student is going to do the next uh, thing over here that after that swimming. Then I would talk about uh, maybe a swimming habit so uh, of uh, other animals. And then I can say, did you know that an interesting thing, whales, when they sleep, they sleep they immediately become vertical and then they sort of are suspended. So here I'm going to do a kind of an interesting uh, information around that and then to slow the student down so that the student feels that, you know, what she's telling is interesting too. Yeah. So because I compete with that. Yes. I, I think this is a really key point because just like someone might have language. They might be able to speak, but their speak is not necessarily, speaking is not productive necessarily. They might say the same word over and over again. The same can be true for typing as well. They might be able to type and spell fluently, but it's yeah. not a productive way of communicating. Yes. And we yeah. want it to be productive to help them. And so create micro lesson because this is a kind of a cognitive intervention. So whatever the student has, I have to grow a little more. I have to mm. grow a little more. And that's how growing the bubbles and growing the radius of what, whatever the student has or student is uh, locally focused. Excellent. I love, I love hearing that because I think sometimes too, people can get into the all or nothing mentality. And I've seen this because many people classify my child as nonverbal, though he really does try to talk. It doesn't sound perfect or audible all the time. But mm. I've seen people make, the verbal ability, black or white. Oh, he can talk. So they assume it must be productive or he can't talk. So he, they assume he must not be able to communicate in general. And I think just like you said before, there is a lot of gray area with someone might be able to talk, but they need to slow down or they need to learn to be more productive or they need to learn to reference someone near them so that someone's actually listening to what they're saying or typing, for example. And these are all the things that can be addressed slowly yes. over time. Yes. Amazing. 
Is there anything else that you think is really vital for a parent to know when they're starting rapid prompt, regardless of how old their child or their student is? Yeah, see, one thing is that escaping, because there's some sometimes, okay, I, I'm delegating it to others that, you know, uh, he has so many hours of this therapy, so many hours of that therapy, someone else is going to solve it, it's not going to work, because that someone else who, who you are thinking will solve will go back to a very happy family. Your goals are very different. And one day, that person is going to move out, and you'll be left over there with a very autistic person. So as parents, it would be best to roll up your sleeves and be very involved. And then others who are coming are more like landscapes, but you be the primary person because if you, uh, if your child's life becomes better, your life will become better. Beautiful. When my son was really small, maybe two years old, just diagnosed, I, as a parent, felt like I didn't know enough. I didn't know anything about autism at that time. I, did, I felt like I didn't know enough to be a confident guide or a confident teacher for him. So I, I really felt nervous about it. And I thankfully had someone in my life who's still in my life and she's a relationship development expert. And she was the one who sort of said to me very early on, Sarah, you have to roll up your sleeves and do this because if you're expecting school to fix everything, that's not gonna happen. If you're expecting all these other therapists to fix everything, that's not gonna happen. You have to be the one to do it yourself. And I was so thankful that she said that. And it's echoing what you're saying today of if you're a parent and you're feeling not confident, like I felt back then, just start and maybe just start with one thing that you can feel confident about. If you feel confident about asking your child yes and no questions, do more of that, do it all day long, you know, keep it really simple and, and start incorporating something relating to the alphabet, depending on the age of your child and how appropriate it is. If that's the only thing you feel like you can do, start with something and then yeah. keep going and get support so that you can learn more as you go. But don't wait for someone outside of your home to- Yeah, they'll come. They, yeah, they, they'll come, that's good. But then- uh, you also have to know what exactly is going on because if you're not looking, so the other person may be just filling up the hours and your son is not, your child is not going from point A to point B, which is most important. So yeah. you have to be more, a little more involved and ask for a, so whoever says, okay, these are the goals we'll work for, ask for a roadmap. How will you achieve the goals? Because if you are not asking for the roadmaps, people are going to show you great goals. We want him to do this. We want him to how. Because that how, if someone asks me, how will you do this? How will you make that person point? I have a roadmap. So that is what RPM has. RPM can give a particular roadmap that th these are the stages that we are going to do the how. And, but you have to ask the other therapists also, like uh, whether the student goes for a speech or a behavior or something, just say, what are your goals? What are the roadmaps? If you listeners only take one thing away from this episode, I know you'll take many things, but if you only take one thing away from this episode, take that and listen to it again and again, because you as an empowered parent have every right to ask these types of questions 
And so many parents don't because they think, oh, well, this person's the expert. I'm not an expert. You're the expert in your own child. Yes. And you have every right to ask these questions. This is so valuable for so many people to hear. So Ma, thank you so much for taking the time to educate our listeners today, tell them how to use these very powerful tools and to keep learning because this is an ongoing process and we're all here to learn and grow together. Thank you everyone for listening. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure to have you. Thanks. Thanks. If today's show resonated with you, please leave a review through your favorite podcast provider as it's an important step in allowing new listeners to find us when they need to hear this message in their own lives.